0: Good morning. Open up to the book of Hebrews, please, into chapter 12. Hebrews 12 as we read together through verses 18 through 29. Hebrews 12:18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are indeed grateful that we have not only received an unshakable kingdom in Christ our King, But now in Christ you accept our worship and receive it on behalf of his name. And so it is in Christ that we come to you now pleading on his blood and his atonement uh, that our worship of you, our reading of the scripture might be not only nourishing to us but worshipful in such a way that you are pleased with us. Father, we thank you that we can come now before your unshakable and sure word. Lord, it feeds us. It is a light unto our path. It is spiritual nourishment for our wayward and hungry hearts. Lord, I pray now that as we come before your word, you would be pleased in this hour to correct us and to reform us. Lord, also to cause us to repent of sin and likewise encourage us in faithfulness. Lord, draw us nearer to Christ so that as we behold Him in faith, Father, we might endure to the end, to the day we see Him face to face. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we've been working through the book of Hebrews, we've seen over and over again the main exhortation by our author to persevere and to endure. Finishing well the journey set before us, which is called this Christian life. As he's been encouraging his readers as well as us, he's been doing so by by primarily calling us to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, we read back in verse 2 of this very chapter. Look to Jesus who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Keep your eyes set on Jesus as you... Continue on through this life and by faith follow him so that in the end you will have found life, eternal life. But if you remember, part of the problem that his original readers were struggling with was their temptation to leave the church, right? Their temptation to leave Jesus and go back to Judaism. Yes, they were beginning to experience persecution because of their new faith. And part of their desire, it seems, was to go back to what they knew before and escape the suffering and the struggle of persecution now. But have you ever wondered why their temptation was to go back to Judaism? Well, no doubt it was what they knew. There was a familiarity to it. They grew up in that air, and I imagine they even missed parts of it. Because becoming a Christian wasn't just, you know, being a Jew who added Jesus into the religious mix. It was something entirely new. Becoming a Christian was something radically different. And I can't help but think that many of these Hebrew Christians began to remember and even miss a bit of their old way of doing things. In part, perhaps... Part of this book's encouragement to endure is focused at these Christians because now that they, they've been Christians for some time and, and the routine rhythms of the Christian life were, were beginning, well, they were beginning to be just that, routine, a bit humdrum and predictable. They'd continued to meet, we, uh, meet week after week, meeting for fellowship and, and hearing the word preached. But perhaps some of them wanted something more, something a bit more exciting. Something that they were used to back when they worshipped at the excitement of the temple. So they were beginning to neglect the regular gathering of the local church. And of course if you remember in our study through this book our authors had to encourage them to not neglect that part of the Christian walk. They needed to keep on meeting together. But still there were many who remembered I'm sure the glory and the majesty of what worship used to be like. In Jerusalem, back on the Temple Mount, there where Herod's temple rose high and exalted above the city, painted in white and lined in gold. It sparkled in the sunlight and seemed to even have a glow about it. And the closer you came to it, the, the more your senses got involved, right? There was that ever-lingering smell of cooked lamb and beef And oxen, the residue of those sacrificial animals that were continually being offered up on the central high altar, whose smoke you could see rising high into the heavens for miles away. This mixed with the aroma of incense, which was also constantly burning, filling the air with smells of sweetness and spice. As you approach, you could begin to hear the sound of trumpets. And the shofar, the ram's horn, blowing aloud and calling all the Jews around in the south of it to worship, along then with the rhythmic beating of cymbals and drums and tambourine. And all of this accompanied by the loud singing of the psalms, which filled the air with stories of God's saving work. It was exciting, beautiful. This was a worship which involved every sense, sight, smell, sound, touch. This was a sensual religion, one which demanded attention and and left lasting memories. But it had also become a religion, a worship devoid of one essential thing, Jesus Christ. And the whole book of Hebrews has been reminding us, hasn't it? That now that Jesus has come, everything has changed. All of that worship, everything connected to and a part of the temple, and a part of that old covenant style of worship, all of that was only but a shadow pointing forward to something better. Jesus Christ. And now that Jesus Christ has come, the shadow has vanished. But oh, how they missed it. Sure, we're a sensual people still. And though Jesus said that he came to make God's people worship the Father in spirit and in truth, no longer worshiping on this mountain or on that that mountain, no longer needing all the external trappings of the old covenant, but only worshiping by the Spirit and in the word of his truth. Even Even though Jesus had inaugurated that reality, we all still desire, don't we, the old way of doing things? This is what the church sadly began to do during the medieval age. We'll see this in our church history class in Sunday school. Where in the middle ages, the church began to push to the side God's word. And beginning more and more to reinstate the things of the temple. The worship of the old covenant. Bringing back the incense that they would swing. uh, Wearing again the bright garb and clothing of the Old Testament priests referring to the Lord's Supper not as a sign of the new covenant, but now as a sacrifice, even indeed calling the Lord's table the altar. Even today, many churches retain these old covenant trappings, don't they? Referring to the church building now as a temple, wearing the garb. or oh, were a people who are drawn for one reason or another back to a worship which is sensual and old. And so were the people to whom Hebrews was written. That's why the author is constantly equating them throughout the book with that wilderness generation. Remember? That Old Testament generation who experienced the salvation of the Lord in and through the Exodus, but who were constantly grumbling, constantly wanting to go back to the sights and smells and sounds of Egypt. Oh, the food we used to eat in Egypt. Oh, and do you remember the worship there? Those beautiful golden calves that they used to make as an image of God. That was something. And so the author is saying now, you're no better than the wilderness generation wanting to go back to the empty and dead worship of the old covenant. God is not in that worship because Jesus is not in that worship. And so if you turn back, if you leave the spiritual simplicity of the worship you've been called to now, the the worship of the local church where you're gathering to sing psalms and hear the word preached and eat a meal together, if you leave that, you will have returned to something more glorious? No. You will have left the glory of Jesus Christ. Don't give up, the author is saying. Persevere. Endure. Endure. And I think our text this morning is showing us this truth by ultimately comparing what it was they left for what it was they and we have come to. He's going to compare their old worship with their new worship and show them why the new is eternally and infinitely better. The first way he wants to compare the new with the old is by bringing side by side the old covenant versus the new covenant. And you can see that in verses 18 through 24. But how does he do this? Well, he uses the image of two mountains. you see that in the text? There's the first mountain, which is a reference to Mount Sinai. Do you remember Mount Sinai in Exodus? It's where God came down and and met with the people to give them the law, the covenant that they were to live under as God's people. But if you remember that scene, it was something terrifying. The top of the mountain was, was covered in Thick, black, dark clouds and smoke, lightning flashing all around, the earth shaking and quaking. And the most terrifying part of it all? It was God's presence, His thundering voice. All who heard God speak cowered in fear. And of course they would. It's God, He's mighty. He's all-powerful. His glory is is described almost like a hundred nuclear bombs that just went off right in front of your face. This is why the Old Testament continually says that if anyone looks upon the Lord, they will die. Being in God's presence is not cuddles and cozy feelings of warmth. It's dangerous. It's terrifying. Indeed, it's deadly. And here's the important thing. Our author actually ends this whole section with that point, doesn't he? He reminds us there in verses 28 and 29 that our worship of God must be an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? Because, verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. That God that showed up on Mount Sinai which drove the people to cower in fear, guess what? He's the same God yesterday, Today, tomorrow, and forever. He will always be that God. And so He's author, the author here is driving this same point about our worship home even more. Your, your worship must be acceptable worship. A worship that God is said to worship Him with. Because if we don't, if it's an unacceptable worship, well, then we come to God with an unacceptable worship. And we do so to our own eternal demise. Our God is a consuming fire. So the author is comparing here what worship was like on Mount Sinai with how worship is today, what he calls Mount Zion. See that in verse 18? For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. here was how the Old Covenant began. How the Hebrew worship centered as it was upon the temple began. It was on this mountain where, where God gave all the instructions for what worship would look like. But even here, the author makes it, I think, abundantly clear. It was a worship which drove a wedge between God and the people. Not only was it terrifying, but it was also threatening, a threat of death kind of threatening. See that in verse 20? God made it clear that if even an animal, much less a person, touched the holiness of the mountain that the holy God descended upon, that person, that animal, would need to be stoned to death. The theological point is clear. Sinful man cannot stand before a righteous and holy God. His righteousness demands justice. And so even our our presence before His pure holiness demands a just verdict. Guilty. Death. It's interesting, isn't it, that the first words God gave to Israel upon that mountain were the ten words, the the, the ten commandments as we know them. And you know, don't you, that, that those ten words were commandments given to first show the people how sinful they really were. Commandment number five. Honor your mother and father. Now, what child here this morning has kept that commandment perfectly? And so from a very young age, every Jew should have known, shouldn't they? I stand guilty before God. Thou shalt not lie. Big lies. Little lies. White lies. Fibs. Not speaking up for the truth. Not speaking out. When truth demands it, you get the point. Guilty. The law coming down out of Mount Sinai was a law of condemnation. The revelation from God served as a, as a mirror for us to see the horror of our own fallen and sinful hearts. And then the mirror spoke You're guilty. And here's the truly terrifying part, I think, of Mount Sinai and the Old Covenant. Even the mediator, who was supposed to stand as a righteous go-between between God and the people, even he trembled in fear at the sight of God's holiness and aware of his own sinfulness. See that in verse 21? Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Moses was meant to be the great redeemer, the prophet of God who spoke on God's behalf to the people and who spoke on the people's behalf to God. And even he couldn't stand before the condemning presence of God's holy and consuming wrath. But notice what the text says in verse 18. You have not come to what may be touched. This old covenant law came to the people in intangible and and intouchable ways. It was upon a tangible mountain, Mount Sinai, which, if the people touched, they die. But it also came, as it were, with Tangible worship? The bloody sacrifice of the animals, which the high priest would then physically take and sprinkle upon the people, each drop hitting their face and body is a very tangible and, and yes, somewhat intense reminder that what their sin required was death. Blood needed to be shed. The worship was very physical. So here, then, was the old covenant worship signified as it was with Mount Sinai and Moses. But how does the author compare? Well, we haven't come to that mountain as Christians. No, verse 22, we've come where? You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Here's the comparison then, between the old terrifying, threatening, and intangible worship of Mount Sinai, now with the new spiritual Secure and sanctified worship of Mount Zion. And the contrast, I think, couldn't be sharper. Uh, instead of terror, it's now filled with innumerable angels and festal or, or festive gathering. It's a scene of joy and thanksgiving. And instead of threatenings, it's now a scene of security. It's a worship filled with the assembly or the, the church of the firstborn. All those who have been born again, and as verse 23 says, all who are enrolled in heaven, their names are enrolled in the book of life. There is eternal security. And look at how this worship is no longer characteristically tangible, like the worship of the old covenant coming down from Mount Sinai. No. Now, this worship has an intangible spiritual nature to it. We haven't come to a mountain that can be touched. No, we've come to Mount Zion. That is to say, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. And friends, that's a very striking phrase. Perhaps you were with us in our study through the book of Revelation on Thursday nights. And and if you were, you will have remembered in the book of Revelation, we see that on the last day, after Jesus has defeated all his enemies and, and history has finally come to its consummated end... We see there that the the heavenly Jerusalem, the kingdom of heaven, descends. And we see there the two spheres of the heavenly and the earthly finally becoming one. Which is to say, as of right now, the heavenly and the earthly are not one. There's still a great chasm separating the heavenly realm from this earthly and fallen and sinful realm. But look at how verse 22 says it. We have come now, presently, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly city and kingdom of the living God. So that what the author is saying here, I think, is that in a very real sense, Christians have come to and are enjoying now the fruits of heaven now. Did you know that when we gather together on Sunday mornings to unite together as one in our worship of God... Heaven itself breaks into our very existence, our localized existence here. It's it's only spiritually so, yes, that's to be said. There's not much that's tangible in our worship, but we are on Mount Zion, where two or more are gathered in my name. There I, the King of Jerusalem and Mount Zion, there I am with you, says our Lord Jesus and that's the real difference between Mount Sinai and, and Mount Zion, isn't it? Both mountains have their own respective mediators. Dark and gloomy Sinai, with all the condemning power of the law pointing its ugly finger at your sin and constantly declaring you guilty, guilty, guilty. And who's your mediator on Mount Sinai? Oh, it's old man Moses, himself trembling with fear before the presence of God because he knows, he knows. He too stands guilty before the consuming fire of God's holiness. But come now to Mount Zion. What do you find there? You see there on top a cross. There, the the place where the Son of God who became a man didn't sprinkle the blood of bulls and goats on the people below to only appease God's wrath for a season. No, he sprinkled his own blood being nailed as it was to the cross Himself. He let His own blood, untainted as it was without sin, drip down His face and body as He became the more perfect mediator and the more perfect sacrifice. Verse 24 says that His blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Here the author is picking up on how He began chapter 11 and in verse 2, do you remember that? Where He spoke of the faith and the death of Abel. Abel, whose blood still speaks, he says. Did you ever wonder what message it was that the blood of Abel spoke? Well, it was a message, I think, very similar to the message found on old Mount Sinai. A message of condemnation. It cried out to God, accusing and condemning guilty Cain, the brother and the murderer of Abel. It spoke out a curse on Cain as it brought separation between Cain and God. Cain had to travel east, cursed, and now separated from his God. That's what the blood of Abel spoke out. But the blood of Jesus, which now stains the soil on Mount Zion, what message does that speak out? It speaks of forgiveness. It's a word of blessing. And that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The the blood now speaks a word of reconciliation. And that we, who like Cain, we were enemies of God and separated from him by birth. Now we are his children and we are his beloved. We are unified with him as we are found in Christ and covered in that blood. And As you follow that trail of blood up Mount Zion. And it leads your eyes to the cross, which is fixed on top of that hill. You'll discover, I think, the most amazing of sights. Jesus isn't on the cross. It's an empty cross. He died. Yes, that's for sure. He, he emptied all his blood for all who believe in him. But the amazing truth of Mount Zion is that Jesus did not stay dead. He rose again, and He's now alive, and He walks the streets of that heavenly Jerusalem, not only as as King of heavenly Jerusalem, but living as our ever-present and eternal mediator. Verse 24 tells us that Jesus is there, alive on Mount Zion, as the mediator of a new covenant. He isn't pointing His finger at us in condemnation, crying out guilty. The law of Mount Sinai has been silenced nor is he now trembling before the consuming glory of the Father like a weak and frail Moses. No, he stands strong and he stands secure and he welcomes us. Anyone who would believe with arms wide open and he says, Come, won't you come now to Mount Zion and find life. Find here on this mountain an unshakable kingdom of saints and citizens who worship God with an acceptable worship. Remember that that was the issue in this passage, right? If God is a consuming fire, and He is, well, then what worship can I bring to Him that will be acceptable, especially in light of my sinfulness? And there the temptation, their temptation was to turn back and to find comfort in the old worship of Mount Sinai, in the old worship of the law and the temple. But our author is so clear here, isn't He? No, no, no. True worship. The only worship that God will accept is worship in Jesus Christ. Without him as our mediator, we, we, we stand naked before the consuming glory of the Father. If we come to him without Jesus, then Moses and the law must speak for you on your behalf. Here God is a sinner. Your holy law condemns them. That's the only defense you'll get. But if Jesus' blood speaks on your behalf, oh, the defense is clear. Here, Father, is your child, for I was condemned in their place. You poured out your consuming wrath upon me so that they might enjoy your enveloping love. There's the comparison, friends. Approaching God up the steep steps of Mount Sinai, led by Moses, and unaccompanied by all the shadows of the temple worship. Or are we now approaching God up the gentle slopes of Mount Zion? led by Jesus, the Son of God Himself, led now to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So what then is our response to be? What's the takeaway? Well, we're told in verse 25, aren't we? See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. That's the message. Jesus is speaking to you now from heavenly Mount Zion. Follow me, He says. Come to me and, and enter into the acceptable worship of God through me. And we're to see it. We're to see to it that we do not refuse Jesus. See to it. In other words, don't leave here this morning thinking, I've got time. I'll come later to Jesus when, when it's a little bit more right for me to do so. Jesus isn't going anywhere. Or I'll come later when I've finished having my fun and and pursuing the worship of all pleasures that I want to go after. No. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Why? For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us now from heaven. Here he brings up that wilderness generation again. And how they refused to listen to God when He first spoke from Mount Sinai on earth. And look, as we've seen that speaking, that message from God, it was terrifying. It, it shook the earth, says verse 26. But you do know, don't you, that God is always speaking. He is always revealing Himself. And He's spoken to us now perfectly and finally in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in the scripturated Word of the Bible. Jesus is the Word of God in flesh. My brother Keith Kaufman pointed this out earlier uh, this week. The truth that with greater revelation always comes greater responsibility. The stakes are higher now for us. In a way, there is a final message coming, isn't there? A final word from God which will end all history. The final shakedown, if you will. That's what verses 26 and 27 are saying. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Yet once more, and God will shout his final message, the day of reckoning. And this time, not only will the earth shake like it did when God spoke the words of judgment to top Mount Sinai. No. Now his final word of judgment will shake the entire cosmos. There will be a cosmic quake, the results of which will bring everything and anything. Not grounded to Mount Zion, not firmly connected to Jesus. It will bring it down. There's a final comparison the author is revealing here. It's a comparison, I think, in our responses to God's speaking. There are those who, in not refusing Jesus, now stand secure on Mount Zion. Verse 28 says that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There's the right response. Faith is an uns- faith in an unshakable Savior who rules over an unshakable kingdom... And by trusting in him, we become inheritors and are enrolled ourselves as unshakable citizens in that kingdom. But, then there are those who do refuse. Those persons who, in refusing to listen to Jesus, and refuse to come to him by faith, and have aligned themselves with the kingdom of this world, an insecure and unstable world, as we know, Now all who dwell there were told they will not escape. In that final day of reckoning, when God speaks his final word of judgment, the ground they stand on will fall away. The things they trusted in, it'll all vanish. The hopes they had, the, the excuses they thought they could maybe bring before God at the last day, none of that will stand. And there they will be, naked and exposed to the presence of God's consuming fire. You know that's what hell is, right? It's not so much the absence of God, but rather the standing in the full presence of God without a mediator. The glory and peace of heaven is only so because of the presence of Jesus Christ. God is there, but so is Christ, our mediator. But in hell, there is no mediator to intercede. There is no blood of Jesus to speak on your behalf a better word. So do you see then the urgency of verse 25? See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Friends, will you respond and go to Jesus? If you have not believed in him and you have not submitted your life to him yet, oh, I pray, do so now. Pray now, Lord Jesus, be my mediator. Be my savior. I'm listening and I want to live the rest of my life listening to and obeying your word. I want to be grounded with you on Mount Zion. Save me. If you have, if you have listened and you're not refusing his word, come to Jesus. Well, then our instruction is clear. Be grateful. You can now approach God confidently in acceptable worship. That's how this whole passage ends. If you've come to Jesus and you now stand secure on Mount Zion, then let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray.